I was leaving the South to fling myself into the unknown. I was taking a part of the South to transplant in alien soil to see if it could grow differently, if it could drink of new and cool rains, bend in strange winds, respond to the warmth of other suns, and perhaps to bloom. That evocative description of leaving one's home in the North for another life in the South was a footnote in Richard Wright's autobiography, Black Boy. Wright was one of the six million-plus African Americans who made that journey in the period following World War I through the 1960s. This mass movement of people became known as the Great Migration, and it's the subject of Isabel Wilkerson's acclaimed new book, which she titled the warmth of other suns. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. When millions of African Americans left the farms of the South for the factories of the North, they transformed not just the face of the country, but its culture as well. First, there was the scale of the movement. When the migration began, 90% of African Americans were living in the South. When it ended, half were in the North. New York, Chicago, Detroit, Los Angeles were some of the cities absorbing these newcomers with their customs and traditions. This merging of cultures of North and South, of rural and urban, of black and white, had a profound impact on American life and American art in all its forms. Literature, theater, dance, visual art, and music. All were shaped in some ways by this internal journey. I spoke to Isabel Wilkerson about the far-reaching impact the Great Migration had on the arts. I began our conversation by asking her to describe the circumstances that led so many to leave the South, to migrate North. Migration doesn't really capture it because they were not moving or leaving with the idea of returning at that time, and most of them were thinking that they were leaving for good. And so in some ways I view it and describe it as a defection from a caste system into which the people had been born and were not permitted to escape unless they actually left on their own. So it was kind of a fleeing, a kind of, of seeking of political asylum uh, to parts of the country that would be more welcoming to them. The system they left was the Jim Crow system of the South, and it was an all-encompassing system. Can you give us a sense of what we're talking about when we talk about Jim Crow laws? Yes, I think that one of the things uh, about talking about this era is that so many of us believe that we have an understanding of it based on the pictures that we might have seen of, of the black and white uh, water fountains, for example. But in many ways, that was just the least of it. That was in some ways probably what many of them probably might have been able to live with, uh, considering all that they were really up against. From the moment they would uh, awake in the morning to the moment that they turned in for the night, there were reminders, rules, protocols, uh, expectations, limits, restrictions on every single thing that they might do. There were in Birmingham, for example, it was against the law for blacks and whites to play checkers together. In courtrooms throughout the South, there was a black Bible and a white Bible to swear to tell the truth on. That meant that if a black person were to take the stand, they could not swear to tell the truth on the same Bible that had just been used for 
the white eyewitness who might have just testified. So they'd have to stop everything and find a different Bible for that person to use. Uh, so that in every sphere of life, anything that could be conceived of was uh, put into a law. There were separate staircases, separate telephone booths, separate parking spots. It also, interestingly enough, one thing that many young people respond to more than anything is the, the fact that an African-American motorist was not permitted to pass a white motorist on the road, no matter how slow that motorist might be going. And of course, because a caste system in in itself is in some ways hard to maintain, and it lasted for 60 years by law and longer than that by tradition, it was difficult to maintain, and so therefore the way to enforce it required violence. And so every four days, somewhere in the South, during the time period we're discussing, uh, the early years of the migration, the early decades of the migration, I should say, there was a lynching of an African-American once every four days. And that was what was necessary in order to maintain this caste system, which in some ways was untenable. I'm on my way to freedom land I'm on my way for a freedom land. I'm on my way, freedom land. I'm on my way, great God Almighty. I'm on my Isabel, what did people find when they reached the North? They found that the North was not as welcoming as they might have hoped. They found anonymous cities where almost everyone had a reason to resent or to feel threatened by their arrival. You had large numbers of people who were, had been living in a system where they had been so oppressed and, and so uh, underpaid that they would have been willing to take anything, which would have driven down the wages of anyone who was already in these northern cities and working. There was a great fear that they were going to drive down everyone's wages, for one thing. They also were people who had just come from the land, so they were, they were not wise to the ways of the north and of the big cities, and they dressed differently, and they spoke differently differently, and uh, they were easily taken advantage of. And so they found that it was a cold, dangerous, and inhospitable place for them. And yet their goals were so modest. They merely were looking to find a place where they could get a job, be paid, would have been a step up for many of the people there. So their, their goals were modest. Oh, up river where the old mill runs. Well, in the midst of all this struggle, nonetheless, these people who came from the South also brought Southern culture with them. And with that migration of culture, there came the transformation of American culture because of the Great Migration. You're absolutely right. In fact, I think that's one of the little-known after-effects that is so immense that it's hard to even put it into context. This great migration was in some ways a transfer, not just of people, but of an entire culture. And once the people arrived in these northern and western cities, by their exposure to the northern rhythms and metabolism, carrying inside their hearts and in their memories the language, the um, imagery, the music, the food, the culture of the South, there was a marriage of both north and south within the art 
and the uh, cultural and creative expression of the people, but more importantly, I think just in a larger sense too, of their children, the children who had the opportunity to, to go to schools where they could actually go to school for an entire school year as opposed to the few months when they were not needed in the field where the children had the opportunity to, say, take music lessons or to take art and to learn how to draw and to paint or to be able to go into a library, which they would not have been permitted to do in the South, and to take out a, a library book, something as simple that we take for granted now. So many people come to mind who are the products of this great migration who literally combined change the culture as we know it. Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison's parents migrated from Alabama to Ohio. By going to Ohio, she would have had the opportunity to go to integrated schools, be exposed to literature in a way she hadn't before, and just walk into a library and take out a book, which would not have been possible back in Alabama at the time that she was growing up. You know, Isabel, there are so many people in literature whose experience is directly related to the migration and whose work is actually an outgrowth of their experience in the migration. And probably the first person to come to my mind is Richard Wright. Richard Wright, whose every word, every word that he produced was in some way uh, an effort to understand his experience as one of the participants in the Great Migration, Native Son, one of the greatest novels of the 20th century black boy, his autobiography was in some ways a deconstruction of his, of his experience growing up in the South in Natchez, Mississippi as the son of a sharecropper, and then the description of his, his experiences, experiences that led him to leave and his ultimate uh, arrival in the North. And it's, of course, from his words that the, the title of this book come. And I love the epigraph in which he describes his leaving the South to fling himself into the unknown. Um, that is exactly what all of these people did, but he's a great example of, of how uh, the culture has been changed as a result of this great migration. The migration itself was such a watershed event in history, in, in 20th century history, that it has seeped into almost every aspect of the culture. So in literature, we have Toni Morrison, Richard Wright, Ralph Ellison. In theater, we have... So many people, Lorraine Hansberry, August Wilson, whose, whose work was directly related to the Great Migration. They are children of the Migration, and their creative energies went toward understanding and recreating in their genre the experiences of the Great Migration. Visual artists also depicted that journey and what life was like for African Americans when they reached the North. You're absolutely right. Romare Bearden, who was a child of the, of the migration, his parents migrated from North Carolina, and his work ended up representing the world that the migrants arrived in, the tenement life. His collages were an ode to those experiences. And, of course, Jacob Lawrence, the great painter from the 20th century, his migration series is legendary. Everyone has seen one of those panels somewhere depicted in the culture. It became, a, uh, in some ways, a, a turning point on so many levels because it validated the experience of the migration uh, during the 1940s when it was taken up and exhibited as truly fine art. It also, of course, elevated him, and it became an iconic representation of what the people had experienced in the North and what had driven them to the North from the South. And so in such simple, stark, beautiful imagery, 
he made it come alive so that there needed to be no words to express what the people had gone through. We've talked about art, literature, theater, but the impact of the migration was probably most strongly felt in the music. Music, as we know it, would simply not be what we now can take for granted had there been no great migration. Uh, It's hard to even imagine what would our ears be hearing had there been no great migration. All the blues musicians from B.B. King and Muddy Waters who were all carrying with them the sounds of the South, which would never have been able to get the wider audience had these people not migrated and gone north where their art could be recorded and then sent all over the world to then inspire such people as Eric Clapton and the Rolling Stones and so many others across the Atlantic who helped to shape rock and roll and who have given, in some ways, an homage to these blues greats in much of what they have said about what inspired them. So that that the humble music of the people of the Great Migration was heard across the Atlantic by uh, teenagers in Liverpool or teenagers in other parts of England and inspired them. So therefore you see the hand of the Great Migration spreading so much farther than one would really even imagine if you just didn't sit down and try to deconstruct this somehow, pull all these pieces together. And it's, in fact, it's overwhelming to think about the effect that it's had on culture. And that is just with blues. Blues is what we commonly think of when we talk about the Great Migration. I like to point to the the role that it had in so many other musical forms that, that become, in some ways, the soundtrack of the 20th century. When we think about popular music, it would be inconceivable now from where we sit to think about popular music without Motown, for example. And Motown simply would not have existed had there been no Great Migration. That's because Barry Gordy, who founded Motown, his parents migrated from uh, Georgia to Detroit, where um, he grew up. And then when he became a grown man, he decided he wanted to go into the music industry, but he didn't have the money, the funds, and the resources to go around the country scouting out talent. He just looked around him in the neighborhood where he was in Detroit, and there was Diana Ross. Diana Ross, her parents had migrated. Her mother had migrated from Alabama, her father from West Virginia. They met in Detroit. The other young women who would join the Supremes, Florence Ballard and Mary Wilson, their parents, too, had migrated from the South to Detroit. And there you have just the beginnings of what would become the Motown sound. The Jackson family, the Jackson Five, Michael Jackson, their parents migrated from the South, had talented children who who came to the attention of Barry Gordy and an entire new way of thinking about music. It's hard to imagine 20th century music without all of the people who came out of Motown. And of course, there's jazz. Jazz simply would not be what we know it to be had there been no great migration. you, You could go all the way back to Louis Armstrong, Louis Armstrong, who came from New Orleans and then went to Chicago, for example. And Miles Davis, his parents migrated from Arkansas to southern Illinois, where he had the opportunity, the luxury of being able to learn and hone his genius. Thelonious Monk, 
His parents migrated from North Carolina to Harlem when he was five, and he, too, had the incredible opportunity, which he never would have had in the tobacco country of North Carolina, to hone his craft and his genius. And John Coltrane, John Coltrane migrated from North Carolina to Philadelphia, where he got his first alto sax at the age of 17. It's hard to imagine where jazz would be, where music, American music would be, where culture would be. In fact, international culture, because these are artists who have uh, a following around the world, who change the way we hear sound. And so the Great Migration has had such a widespread impact on culture as we know it, not just in America, but across the world. I don't think it's an understatement to say that it's hard to imagine what would culture be like had there been no Great Migration. Well, I I also want to piggyback on that because music was also a place where the de facto segregation of the North, and it wasn't the Jim Crow segregation of the South, but there was a de facto segregation. And music was a place where that was disrupted, where an integration, however tenuous, could take shape. I think that you're right, because I think about how music translates across culture and across race and across boundaries. In some ways, it was an ambassadorial entity, in some ways, the music itself. The music could be enjoyed by people of all backgrounds who might never have met otherwise, but it became, in some ways, a a way to translate the experiences and the emotions of one culture, one group of people, to many, many other cultures. And in the same way that the migration was a transfer of people and a culture across the country, the art that grew out of this migration also serves that purpose. Well, the other thing that I think is so interesting, you think of juke joints, for example, in the South, these small, small places where blues musicians and singers could go and perform. And then that gets transferred to a larger and more integrated audience up north. A much more integrated audience because in in, in an odd kind of way, the migration is in some ways a marriage of regions within the United States, and the music becomes a marriage of regions and cultures, and then you have that same marriage occurring in the audiences. I think of the audiences beyond just the juke joints themselves, but just the listeners on the radio, people who who may not have ever even uh, met anyone from Mississippi or met an African-American, is now having that intimate experience of listening on the radio or purchasing what would have been records at that time, listening to the music of the people from the migration is a way of, of in some ways, spreading a kind of humanitarian integration without even trying, because that's one of the beautiful things about art in general, is that art is not to be segregated. Art is to be for the world, and that's what this became. And neither of us mentioned this, probably because it's so obvious, but gospel music was given a national stage because of the Great Migration, and then, of course, an international one as well. You're absolutely right. I mean, there are so many. I mean, rhythm and blues, a gospel, 
all of the uh, growing out of the spirituals that go so far back into Southern culture and were carried with the people. And many of the older ones can break out into the very songs that they grew up in the small clapboard churches in Mississippi or Georgia. Lord, I have trials and tribulations. I've been duped and I've been stoned. And those are the things that were carried north as well. And that tradition and that that form of music has carried through and has um, a very wide following. Mahalia Jackson herself was um, a migrant who had come from Louisiana to Chicago, had a really difficult time finding a home. As famous as she was, the Chicago police actually had to set out guards for the home that she eventually was finally able to buy in the neighborhood that she chose to live in, which happened to have been all white at the time. And they had to set out a guard in front of her home for over a year. So she had a very difficult time. But she, too, was probably one of the most famous gospel singers of all time. And she was a part of this great migration. You proceed each section in your book. You begin each section in your book with a quote from a writer. Often it's Richard Wright, but not exclusively, because there's also some James Baldwin, too. And Langston Hughes. And Langston Hughes, yes, indeed. Talk about why you chose to do that. I chose to do that because I think that Richard Wright stands out the most because he is often speaking directly, absolutely directly to the migration itself. With It's a pure focus on the migration and the migration itself. That was, in some ways, his life's work. So the epigraphs at the beginning of each chapter from him stand out in particular because he's dealing directly with it. But there are quotes from Ralph Ellison, from James Baldwin, from uh, Mahalia Jackson, for example, from Zora Neale Hurston. And the goal was to be able to show, without even having to say yet again, that this migration was huge and involved almost every famous person of African descent. In other words, every famous African American that that uh, you can think of from the 20th century had a role in this great migration uh, or as a product of this great migration. Zora Neale Hurston, for example, came from Florida to New York. James Baldwin was the child of people who come from Georgia. His origins were looking southward. He spoke about that extensively in much of his work. So the goal was to be able to have as many voices speaking almost as a a Greek chorus, as a chorus to breathe life into what you were about to read, to say that this does not just involve the protagonist, but so many other people, so many other famous people for whom the migration was deeply rooted in their own art. You have the oral history there before you with the uh, voices of these famous people coming back and saying, yes, this is what we experienced. This was our story. That was Isabel Wilkerson. We were talking about her book, The Warmth of Other Suns. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. The Warmth of Other Suns by Richard Wright, excerpted from Black Boy, read by Askia Muhammad. Excerpts from Lazy River, written by Hoagy Carmichael and Sydney Roden. And I've Got a Heart Full of Rhythm, written by Louis Armstrong. Both from the album Fleischmann's Yeast Show and Louis's Home Recording Tapes. Both performed by Louis Armstrong and used courtesy 
of the Louis Armstrong House Museum, permission granted by Oscar Cohen, Phoebe Jacobs, and the Louis Armstrong Educational Foundation, Inc. Excerpts from On My Way, from the album We'll Never Turn Back, performed by NEA Heritage Fellow Mavis Staples, used courtesy of Anti Records. Excerpts from Greensleeves, from the album The Complete Africa Brass Sessions, performed by the John Coltrane Quartet, used courtesy of GRP Records. Excerpts from Blue Crescent, from the album Blue Crescent, composed and performed by NEA Heritage Fellow Dr. Michael White, used courtesy of Basin Street Records. Excerpts from Somewhere to Lay My Head, from the album In the Garden, performed by NEH Heritage Fellows, the Birmingham Sunlights. Use courtesy of the Birmingham Sunlights. Excerpt from the traditional spiritual Amen, from the CD Old Time Religion, sung by Everett McCorvey and the American Spiritual Ensemble. The Artworks Podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes. Just click on Beyond Campus and look for the National Endowment for the Arts. Next week, actor and writer Anna DeVere Smith talks about her one-woman show, Let Me Down Easy. To find out how artworks and communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>